Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of Part 1 of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, William Travis, David Crockett, and Jim Bowie, Defenders of the Alamo. Now let's get started with our story about the Defenders of the Alamo. On the morning of March 6, 1836, in the then-Mexican town of San Antonio de Bear, approximately 200 exhausted defenders of a structure known as the Alamo were preparing for the 13th day of a siege imposed by as many as 2,100 Mexican troops commanded by General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. Among these men were individuals whose names were eventually memorialized historically, especially in the state of Texas. Men like William Travis, Jim Bowie, and David Crockett. They and the rest of the less renowned combatants, outnumbered and isolated from possible reinforcement, faced not only defeat, but also death at the hands of their attackers, whose commander had already proclaimed no quarter for any individual who surrendered. What brought these men from all over America to this remote outpost in a sparsely populated territory, and what prompted this seemingly hopeless defense? The answer to that question involves several years of developments in both the United States and Mexico, circumstances that put inhabitants of the region on a collision course with violent conflict. As March 6th dawned, the defenders of the Alamo were about to face the consequences of that conflict. Fifteen years earlier, in 1821, a lengthy military insurgency was able to unofficially establish Mexico's independence from Spain. Although Spain sporadically attempted to reassert control over the country, all of these efforts ultimately failed. However, the Mexican government and political situation remained both violent and unstable. From this chaos emerged the general and warlord Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, a military figure who achieved national prominence for his role in defeating Spanish attempts to reclaim Mexico. Santa Ana eventually consolidated political and military authority and in 1835 dissolved the Mexican Constitution, attempting to transform the Mexican government from a loosely autonomous group of Mexican states into an entity controlled by a federal government. This caused many Mexican states to openly revolt, including the state of Coahuila y Tejas, already a prominent headache for the Mexican government. Initially, American emigration into the Texas Territory was not only tolerated, it was encouraged. The sparse population of the area meant that any occupants were susceptible to attacks from both indigenous peoples and outside organized freelance invasions from groups consisting of what was known as filibusters, U.S. citizens intent on creating dissent and even secession from first Spain and then Mexico. 
Realizing that the only way to strengthen resistance in the region was to increase population, first the Spanish and ultimately the Mexican government granted rights to individuals known as empresarios, persons who received an official contract and land grant in exchange for responsibility to recruit settlers to inhabit this territory. The most prominent empresario in the region was Stephen F. Austin, who inherited his empresarial rights from his father, Moses, who died before being able to implement this arrangement. Stephen F. Austin began to sign up settlers beginning in 1823, and for several years this growth was looked upon favorably by the Mexican government. These settlers were almost exclusively Americans, and many brought slaves with them, a practice that eventually alienated the Mexican authorities. Just as worrisome to the Mexican hierarchy was the imbalance of American emigrants to residents of Mexican descent, a ratio of about four to one. To address this concern, the Mexican government of Anastasio Bustamante implemented a set of laws in April of 1830 that prevented immigration and the further importation of slaves, removed any property tax benefits for immigrants, and promoted the relocation of Mexican citizens to the remote region by providing them with land grants and other financial inducements. This did little to stop the Western migration of Americans to Texas or the ethnic imbalance in the region. With Mexico's refusal to sell the territory to the U.S. government, and many American emigrants not enthusiastic about Mexican governmental controls, the situation remained both contentious and unstable. In 1832, Santa Ana headed up a revolt that removed Bustamante, and an election in 1833 elected Santa Ana as the president of Mexico. Although the military leader was interested in power and military matters, he had little interest in actually governing the country. Delegating responsibility to his vice president, Valentin Gomez Farias, a civilian who attempted to impose liberal reforms, especially impacting economically the Catholic Church. The government also attempted to arrest and expel political opponents, including Bustamante, an urge that only added to national instability. Mexico already had exempted Texas from a slavery ban in 1829. And in an attempt to placate American occupants of Texas, this ban was ultimately annulled unconditionally. Greater legislative representation and a lifting of the immigration ban for Americans was also implemented, and for the moment, the American contingent was placated. However, in 1834, Santa Ana, unhappy with the general national unrest and urged on by more conservative Mexican interests, especially alarmed by the government's treatment of the Catholic Church, ousted Gomez Farias and placed himself at the head of a more autocratic, centralist Mexican authority. This led to regional unrest, and in 1835, Santa Ana was compelled to successfully lead the army against uprising in states including both Oaxaca and Zacatecas. To address the situation in Texas, which was already highly volatile, with American emigrants perpetually interested in secession from Mexico, in September 1835, Santa Ana ordered General Martín Perfecto de Cas to lead a 500-man expeditionary force to land near present-day Corpus Christi, Texas. De Casas' effort was meant as a show of force to quell any potential Texas rebellion, but this development prompted Stephen F. Austin, the de facto political leader of the American contingent, 
to order the formation of local militias. On October 1st, a dispute between local Mexican troops and militia in the town of Gonzales prompted the first actual fighting of what became known as the Texas Revolution. This conflict, although ultimately declared a great victory by members of the local militia, was actually started over the return of a cannon loaned to the town to help defend against attacks from hostile Comanches. The Mexican commander at the head of a modest cavalry force retreated after it became clear that he was both outnumbered and outgunned. Although casualties on both sides were minimal, this was the first significant violence of the Texas-Mexico conflict. In response, Decas rapidly made his way to the garrison town of San Antonio de Bear, present-day San Antonio, Texas, and occupied the town and its extensive fortifications which included a series of buildings surrounding a former mission known as the Alamo. The name Alamo was derived from a company of Mexican soldiers that were natives of the town of Alamo de Paras, stationed at this location for many years. The word Alamo itself means cottonwood or poplar in Spanish. While Decas hunkered down in a defensive posture, American settlers, known as Texians, loosely began to organize a coherent response to the Mexican military presence. On October 10th, approximately 125 members of this volunteer force attacked a minimally defended Mexican garrison at Goliad, forcing a surrender in 30 minutes. Several defenders fled during the battle and warned other Mexican outposts in the area of the possibility of a Texian offensive. Most importantly, Decas and his men were cut off from any resupply from the Gulf of Mexico. Any reinforcements or provisions would now have to come over land. Stephen F. Austin already was attempting to coordinate an attack on San Antonio de Bear, but understood that his contingent was not large enough to actually storm the Mexican defensive positions in the town. This Texian group also contained Tejanos, individuals of Mexican descent who were from the Texas Territory, and in this case, also opposed to the rule of the Mexican government. The Mexican forces of Decas eventually totaled about 1,200 men, almost twice as many as all of the troops Austin could muster. Based on this disadvantage, but encouraged by his forces' enthusiasm, Austin determined that the best strategy to employ against such a numerically superior force was an extended siege, especially in light of the Mexican resupply difficulties. After marching towards San Antonio de Bear, he sent out the newly formed 1st Battalion to scout out appropriate positions for the impending siege. This battalion was commanded by two men, James Fannin and Jim Bowie. Fannin was a West Point dropout and Georgian native active in the slave trade and an active participant in the Texian independence movement. His co-commander, Jim Bowie, was already a nationally renowned frontiersman and fighter, a larger-than-life character whose participation in the Texas Revolution and Battle of the Alamo eventually made him an even larger American legend. James Jim Bowie was born in Logan County, Kentucky, in 1796, one of ten children, Bowie's father was a farmer and land speculator who also owned several slaves. By 1812, the Bowie family was residing in Opelousas, Louisiana, the elder Bowie teaching his children both hunting and agricultural skills as well as proficiency with frontier weaponry of every variety. 
Although Jim and Brother Reason attempted to join Andrew Jackson's defense of New Orleans in 1814, they were too late to actually participate in this campaign. Always adventurous, Bowie eventually joined the Long Expedition, a lengthy but unsuccessful attempt to occupy eastern Texas and expel the local Spanish military. Following these idealistic but mostly misguided adventures, Bowie and his brother Reason settled into the more lucrative but sketchy businesses of land speculation and slave trading. Bowie's participation in the slave trading business was the result of his relationship with the notorious pirate Jean Lafitte. The American government technically banned the importation of slaves in 1807, but an illegal slave trade developed that circumvented this prohibition. Lafitte captured slaves from ships in the Caribbean and then transported them to his remote and mostly uninhabited outpost on Galveston Island. He sold these captured individuals to smugglers like Bowie and his brother, who then exploited loopholes in the law to legally acquire and sell slaves within Louisiana. After buying and trading enough slaves to establish a bankroll, Bowie and his brother got out of that business and established a legitimate sugar plantation near the Gulf of Mexico. But they also began engaging in dubious land sales of former land grants by the Spanish and French governments these properties' chain of ownership having grown hazy over time. Bowie was especially aggressive in selling alleged land-grant properties in Arkansas, the buyers eventually petitioning in court for the certification of these sales as legitimate. Over several years, it was determined that the Bowie brothers had never owned the properties and even used forged documents to swindle prospective buyers. These land ownership claims were eventually rejected by the court in a ruling that was affirmed by the Supreme Court in 1831. The swindled buyers were unable to seek any legal recourse against Bowie when critical documents crucial to any lawsuit mysteriously disappeared. Bowie became nationally famous after an incident that occurred on September 19, 1827, known as the Sandbar Fight. The conflict, essentially a violent, murderous brawl between two competing business and political entities competing over elected offices and business interests in central Louisiana, resulted after a duel that occurred on a sandbar situated on what was then neutral territory along the Mississippi River near Natchez, Mississippi. Initially, two men, Samuel Wells and Dr. Thomas H. Maddox, fought a formal duel that typically concluded with shots fired, but no injuries. While these two individuals seemed content to bury the hatchet, several other members of each contingent had a history of animosity and violent interaction. A spontaneous gunfight broke out in which Jim Bowie was first wounded in the leg, sending him to his knees. Bowie then got up and unsheathed the large hunting knife he always carried for protection and lunged after the individual who shot him, Robert Crane. Bowie was knocked to the ground again when Crane hit him with the butt of his now empty pistol. Norris Wright, an individual who had previously tried to shoot Bowie on another occasion, then fired an errant pistol shot and followed that up with a sword cane attempt to stab Bowie in the chest. The thin blade apparently stuck in Bowie's sternum, while he then mortally plunged his nine-by-one-and-a-half-inch knife into Wright's midsection, ripping upward. Wright bled out quickly while other assailants continued to stab and shoot at Bowie, 
but he successfully fought off his attackers, suffering two bullet wounds and seven knife wounds, including the sword cane that was impaled in his chest. In total, two men were killed, four injured, including Bowie, who needed months to recuperate. News of this sensational episode spread initially through regional and then national newspapers, with the focus on Bowie, his outsized knife, as well as aggrandizing tales of roping alligators on the bayou and similar exploits, transforming him into a frontiersman in the fashion of Daniel Boone. Subsequently, business boomed in the production of Bowie-styled knives, and Bowie himself wore one, sheathed for the rest of his life. By 1830, Bowie, hearing of land speculation opportunities in Texas and not too popular in Louisiana and especially Arkansas, set out for the territory. He formally introduced himself to such prominent locals as Stephen F. Austin, and then, after taking an oath of allegiance to Mexico, began acquiring cheap land grants, ultimately settling in San Antonio de Bear. There he began romancing the 19-year-old daughter of Juan Martin Veramende, the wealthiest businessman and politician in the region. Bowie eventually married Ursula de Veramende, went into business with his father-in-law, and professed to be a wealthy and successful businessman in his own right, selling his holdings outside of Texas. However, after his land sales in Arkansas were ruled fraudulent, he relied mostly on his relatives for both housing and living expenses. Involving himself in the secessionist politics of the region, Bowie was a firm believer in creating a Texas independent from Mexico. As both business and various local conflicts with Mexican troops occupying the territory frequently prompted Bowie to leave his home, he was in Natchez in September of 1833 when he got word that both of his in-laws, his wife, and both children were dead from a cholera epidemic that swept through Monclova, Mexico, the provincial capital of the state of Coahuila y Tejas. Although devastated by this tragedy, Bowie continued to speculate in land sales, continually involving himself in inside deals as a land commissioner, encouraged by legislation prompted by an empty Mexican treasury, which stood to receive fees related to these sales. This quasi-legal practice was shut down by Santa Ana himself, who in May of 1835 abolished the Mexican state government entirely and ordered the arrest of any Texans doing business in the region. Bowie hastily fled back to eastern Texas when, in September of 1835, Santa Ana subsequently ordered the detachment under Decas to enter the territory and restore order, and Austin appealed for volunteers. Bowie answered the call and was now part of the effort to lay siege to San Antonio de Bear. For two months, aside from the occasional skirmish, both factions remained firmly entrenched in their positions. De Cas within the San Antonio town limits, encircled loosely by the Texian forces. Stephen F. Austin decided that, rather than waiting out this process, the Texian cause might be better served if he resigned and assumed the post of commissioner to the U.S. government, in attempt to officially involve the U.S. in the conflict. During this time period, many Texians participated in a formal assembly in San Felipe, Texas. Although this assembly did not declare independence from Mexico just yet, it did form a provisional government, and it was this entity that authorized Austin and two others to solicit the U.S. for material support.
It also formally voted to create an army and named Sam Houston as its commander-in-chief. After this assembly disbanded, the Texian force surrounding San Antonio weighed its options, including lifting the siege until the spring of 1836, colder weather and lack of resources diminishing much of the Texian enthusiasm. This option was rejected, and probably as a result of both boredom and frustration. On December 5th, the Texians decided to attempt to storm the Mexican garrison. Three days of intense fighting resulted in Decas and his men retreating into the grounds of the Alamo compound itself. Running out of supplies and unable to motivate his cavalry to enthusiastically support his plan for a counterattack, on December 11th, Decas formally agreed to surrender. He also agreed to permanently retreat behind the Rio Grande River. This decisive victory satisfied most Texian volunteers who believed that this defeat was sufficient to permanently repel Mexican troops from the region and that an independent Texas would result. Already eager to return to civilian life, many left San Antonio de Bear for their homes. Although Sam Houston's army only existed on paper, he did have the ability to order action from certain individuals. On January 19, 1836, Jim Bowie returned to San Antonio de Bear with orders from Houston to assist the commander there, James Neal, in removing any salvageable weapons and artillery, destroy any fortifications, and abandon especially the Alamo, which was considered too large to defend. However, once he arrived at San Antonio, Bowie decided that it would be better to retain the edifice as a front line of defense against any potential future Mexican invasion. Santa Ana was extremely displeased with both news of Texians actually violently resisting Mexican troops and the surrender of Decas of San Antonio de Bear, especially as Decas was his brother-in-law. Preoccupied with the revolts, especially in Zacatecas, Santa Ana was unable to deal with Texas until he militarily forced the former state to accept federal rule. However, by December of 1835, having successfully quelled any unrest in Zacatecas, Santa Ana was at the head of the Mexican army, marching towards the state of Coahuila y Tejas, invested with the Tornel Decree. This legislation passed by the Mexican Congress at Santa Ana's request specified that foreigners fighting against Mexican troops were stateless combatants, equivalent to pirates, and subject to execution, even upon their surrender. As he approached the Rio Grande, Santa Ana was completely dismissive of Decas's agreement to never cross into Texas territory again, considering it an irrelevant compact made with illegitimate entities. Santa Ana incorporated his brother-in-law's troops into his army and decided to head straight for San Antonio de Bear, avenging a family disgrace, his highest priority. Despite his determination and numerical strength, he faced cold weather, a lack of provisions, and some of his soldiers were either seasonally challenged indigenous natives of the Yucatan or conscripted convicts, neither of whom could be counted upon even before any serious fighting started. Nevertheless, in early February, Santa Ana crossed the Rio Grande. Word of Santa Ana's arrival in the territory quickly made its way to the Alamo. Although Bowie was initially inspired by the actual Alamo mission itself, 
it was clear that the number of defenders, ammunition, weapons, and provisions were insufficient to mount a serious defense of the compound. Whoever was available began earnestly building palisade reinforcements of vulnerable areas and gaps in the 1,320-foot perimeter that enclosed an area of around three acres. Today, the Alamo was thought of as the building that was actually the site's chapel, a structure in the southeast part of the compound. But that was only a much smaller part of the larger complex of mostly connected adobe buildings, enclosing a large rectangular open area. Less than 100 men were on site, so Bowie hastily drafted a letter and sent it to the individual appointed governor by the provisional government, Henry Smith, at San Felipe, Texas. In the letter, Bowie explained why he wanted to defend the outpost rather than abandon it and pleaded for reinforcements of both men and supplies. Smith then turned to the individual designated as officially responsible for recruiting soldiers into the newly elected provisional government's army, William B. Travis, and ordered him to reinforce the garrison at San Antonio. Travis was previously supposed to round up as many as 100 men into a cavalry force, which he would lead as a lieutenant colonel of the three most famous individuals killed at the Battle of the Alamo, Jim Bowie, David Crockett, and William Travis, Travis was by far the most obscure at the time of the incident. William B. Travis was born on August 1, 1809, near Columbia, South Carolina. His grandfather was an indentured servant who eventually became a farmer in the Columbia area. His father moved the family to what was then Sparta, Alabama, and also took up farming. But William Travis was intent on a more professional occupation, and after receiving some formal education, he briefly taught before he began to study law. By October of 1828, Travis was married, and his wife quickly gave birth to a child. Despite passing his bar examination, Travis did not achieve much success as a lawyer and subsisted by borrowing money, his debt becoming so delinquent that his arrest was ordered in March of 1831. Desperate and with another child on the way, Travis, having heard of better economic opportunities in Texas that also necessitated legal services, decided to flee Alabama and head to Texas, arriving in May of 1831. He left his family behind, promising to send money as soon as possible. Travis was not only able to buy land in the newly established town of Anahuac, Texas, he also became involved in several disputes between American settlers and the local Mexican military, the most serious occurring in July of 1835 when Travis organized a militia of 25 men to recapture two Americans arrested in a dispute over taxes. The two men were detained in Anahuac, and Travis quickly obtained the release and expelled the 40-man Mexican contingent. Although any violence was minimal, the Mexican government demanded that Travis be turned over for military prosecution, a demand that was ignored. Because of Travis's decisive efforts, he was given the rank of lieutenant colonel in the newly formed Texian Army of the Provisional Government, the army also commanded by Sam Houston. Travis was also placed in charge of recruitment efforts for this fighting force, as well as receiving command of the Army's cavalry, a virtually non-existent entity. This, however, turned out to be a case of the wrong man in the wrong place at the wrong time. When Governor Smith ordered him to immediately head to San Antonio de Bear to assist Bowie and to reinforce the garrison at the Alamo, 
Travis had only recruited 18 men of the 100 he was charged with assembling. This group was so badly equipped that its commander had to buy basic provisions for his men with his own money, most of which was paid for on credit. Although Travis made it clear that he felt his assignment was inappropriate based on his lack of manpower, he eventually set out for the Alamo, hoping to rally additional support when he got there. He also had misgivings about how he would handle command of the garrison, knowing that Jim Bowie, erratic since the death of his family, was prone to fits of consuming large amounts of alcohol, rendering him either unresponsive or disagreeable. Travis arrived with his modest force on February 3rd, some of his men having deserted along the way. By then it was well known that Santa Ana was heading directly for San Antonio, a development that made Travis's need for additional troops even more urgent. Although Travis obeyed the command to head to the Alamo, he sent several letters back to Governor Smith along the way, requesting that his orders be canceled, his concern that his reputation would be destroyed by the lack of any appropriate resources to defend San Antonio from Santa Ana. These letters were ignored, and Travis realized that his only recourse was to try and find reinforcements as best he could. Upon reaching San Antonio de Bear, Travis's already gloomy mood was depressed even further by the lack of resources, anything of value to a defense of the Alamo, having been removed by departing members of the militia when they left following de Casas' surrender. Even his authority over the garrison was questionable. Many of the 120 members of existing defenders refused to accept Travis as their commander. Lacking any other alternative, Travis agreed that the men could elect their own commander who would share authority with him. He had little choice. Refusing such a process would have resulted in many of the defenders leaving. Eventually, Jim Bowie was elected as the co-commander, a situation that made command of the Alamo even more dysfunctional, with two groups that were hostile to each other. Bowie did not help matters by celebrating his election with a two-day drinking bender. The only good news that Travis received occurred with the unlikely arrival of a genuine American legend, David Crockett. Although his first name was eventually Disneyified into Davy, Crockett was already known as the King of the Wild Frontier. He was born on August 17, 1786, one of nine children of John and Rebecca Crockett. Crockett's father was typical of the settlers living on the fringe of the American frontier, eking out a living, hunting, farming, and subsisting on loans frequently paid back by indenturing his children, including David, to the Crockett family debtors. David Crockett actually left home at the age of 13 to work on a cattle drive and subsequently worked as an apprentice hat maker. Returning home at age 16, he was hired out by his father to pay off another debt incurred by the Crockett family. Eventually, David wound up working for this same individual after the debt was repaid. In 1806, through this connection, Crockett subsequently met his wife, Polly. Based on his expertise in the wild, Crockett was hired as a scout by the Tennessee militia during the Creek War, a conflict in which Andrew Jackson commanded a unit of several thousand troops, one of several intent on an effort to defeat the Creek tribe, a group alarmed by American cultural and territorial infringement. A successful and violent Creek attack on Fort Mims in present-day southern Alabama prompted American demands for revenge and counterattack. Crockett's involvement in this war seems to be simple. 
one of Scout and Hunter, to provide meat for his fellow militiamen. Later behavior seems to indicate an ambivalence in his attitude towards Native Americans, an unusual perspective, especially in the American frontier and Tennessee. Although he also enlisted to participate in the War of 1812, Crockett's unit did not see significant action. By 1817, after emerging from the military, David situated his family in Lawrence County, Tennessee, as one of the area's first inhabitants. Making a living as a professional hunter, mostly of wild bears, Crockett also began to involve himself in local politics, serving as a county commissioner and eventually as a state-appointed justice of the peace. He also served several terms in the state legislature and was eventually elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1826. He was re-elected to a second term in 1828, but ran into trouble when he emphatically opposed Andrew Jackson's plans to relocate Native Americans, an especially unpopular stance in Jackson's home state of Tennessee. Defeated for re-election in 1830, he was returned to Congress one more time in 1833. It was during this time period that Crockett co-wrote an autobiography entitled A Narrative of the Life of David Crockett of the State of Tennessee, an attempt to take advantage of popularity generated by an 1831 play entitled The Lion of the West about a larger-than-life pioneer named Nimrod Wildfire, but obviously fashioned after Crockett. It was during his publicity tour promoting this book's publication that a quote attributed to Crockett discussing his immediate political future appeared in numerous newspapers. Quote, I told the people of my district that I would serve them as faithfully as I had done, but if not, they might go to hell and I would go to Texas. Upon his defeat for re-election, Crockett did head for Texas with a small contingent of Tennesseans. They arrived in the territory in January of 1836, and with little of substance happening anywhere else but San Antonio de Bear, Crockett made his way to the town and the Alamo itself, arriving on February 8th. Although well-meaning, Crockett may not have understood the danger of such an action, with word already arriving from Tejano scouts that Santa Ana's army was less than two weeks away and bearing down on San Antonio, no one at the Alamo seemed to be immediately concerned about the preparedness of the garrison to withstand such an onslaught. The two days following Crockett's arrival were spent in celebration and fandango, with a great deal of alcohol consumed. Everyone would worry about Santa Ana later. Whether an excuse or a genuine necessity, former Commander James Neal left San Antonio on February 11th, for what was officially designated as a two-week leave to care for a sick family member, effectively leaving Travis and Bowie as the garrison's commanders. While those on site within the garrison spent whatever time remaining trying to shore up fortifications against any potential attack, Colonel Travis focused on trying to round up reinforcements from any potential source, no matter how unrealistic. The most accessible and possibly consequential fighting force was in Goliad, 95 miles away. 300 men with artillery under the command of Colonel James Fannin were situated there after backing away from a potential assault on the Mexican town of Matamoros. Travis sent a messenger with a message that underlined his vulnerability, lack of resources, and concluded the plea with the sentence, we deem it unnecessary to repeat to a brave officer who knows his duty that we call on him for assistance. 
Travis sent a similar letter on the same day, February 23rd, to the garrison at Gonzales, Texas, with the same entreaty. Developments on the afternoon of February 23rd were about to make the Alamo defenders' situation even more desperate. Although his march northward was disorganized and difficult with his troops experiencing cold weather and a lack of proper supplies, 1,800 of Santa Ana's men successfully accessed the town's exterior on the morning of February 23rd, much earlier than the Texans anticipated. Any remaining mostly Tejano inhabitants of San Antonio de Bear fled, a small number of residents making their way to the protection of the Alamo complex. Marching literally at the head of his army, Santa Ana made his way to the main plaza, at least this part of his fighting force, in perfect formation, both cavalry and infantry, accompanied by a military band and individuals charged with carrying numerous battle flags, providing an impressive and intimidating sight. Santa Ana wasted little time conveying a specific warning to the occupants of the Alamo, ordering a giant solid blood-red flag to be hung from a tower of the prominent San Fernando Cathedral, easily visible to the Texians and only 800 yards from the compound itself. In accordance with the Mexican government's legal classification of the defenders as literal pirates, they were to receive no quarter on the battlefield or upon capture. Within minutes, the 18-pound cannon situated on the southwest corner of the Alamo responded with a thundering boom, a cannonball landing harmlessly, but conveying a powerful message of Texian defiance. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about the Alamo. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Three Roads to the Alamo by William C. Davis and A Time to Stand, The Epic of the Alamo by Walter Lord. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige, and also rate us on iTunes. If you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Mm-hmm.